Hello, and welcome to another episode of EMS, History, Myth, and Media. I'm sorry for the lengthy gaps uh, between the episodes. The past 18 months have been quite eventful, and not necessarily in a good way for all of us in the broad field of emergency medical services. Given my age and my family situation, I have in the past year retired from my post-emergency medicine jobs. I gave up teaching family medicine residents, being the medical director of a hospital-owned urgent care clinic, and most recently turned over my position as a regional medical director of the state office of EMS to a younger but very capable emergency physician. Now that the upheaval is essentially over, I'm ready to turn out a few more episodes of my podcasts. This episode concerns the history of what we in the emergency medical services community referred to as the alphabet courses, CPR, ACLS, PALS, ATLS, and others. Thanks for listening, and let's learn about the alphabet courses. This is Rex Leisure, and I'm so glad that you listen. Since the 1960s, emergency medical services have grown tremendously. The specialty of emergency medicine, as well as the pre-hospital occupations of EMT and paramedic, developed virtually simultaneously. I refer you to a couple of earlier episodes of EMS History, Myth, and Media for more complete details of that history. During the nascent phase of the dedicated emergency medical specialties, a new concept in education developed alongside it the short course in a particular skill for EMS professionals, the so-called alphabet course. Let's follow a rather chronologic path of these courses. Typically, the courses range from a few hours to a few days in length and are focused on a narrow aspect of emergency care. They have a pre-test and a post-test, and if you pass, you receive a card certifying you're passing the post-test. Most of them also have skill stations simulating hands-on performance of the core skills involved. Most certify you for a specified time, requiring either that you take the full course again or just take an abbreviated refresher course and that you pass a recertification exam. All of them cost money. As an aside, the American Board of Emergency Medicine has a policy stating that board certification in emergency medicine for physicians indicate that those current in their board certification have demonstrated a competence in excess of passing some 8- to 36-hour skills course. The American Board of Emergency Medicine policy prohibits the possession of a current card in any of the alphabet courses to be a criteria for employment by any hospital or emergency medicine employment group. This is not the case for non-physicians or physicians who aren't board certified in emergency medicine. So, let's start with CPR. So, the basic precepts of CPR are some physical method of manually causing circulation of blood and some method of ventilating the victim. Since the 16th century, people have used physical methods to try to revive people. Listen to my episode on the history of resuscitation for a lot more of that history. The bottom line here is that in around 1960, external chest compressions was proven to produce some circulation of blood, and around that time, mouth-to-mouth ventilation was proven to oxygenate the bloods circulating through the lungs. The marriage of these two physical resuscitation methods were adopted by the American Heart Association and termed 
cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, around 1963. The American Heart Association had been around since 1924 when six cardiologists formed it in Chicago. The organization developed a course in CPR, formalized the teaching, and have taught hundreds of thousands in how to perform it. Periodic updates are approved by the American Heart Association, the most current being hands-only CPR in 2012. This course is for the general public as well as medical personnel. Of note is that some medical professionals were initially skeptical of the concept of CPR in their 60s, but the course was generally accepted by the early 1970s. In the early 1970s, the American Heart Association began work on a course going beyond the CPR basics. By 1974, they introduced BLS, basic life support, essentially EMT-level techniques for the next steps in resuscitation, and ACLS, advanced cardiac life support, for paramedic and higher trained professionals. ACLS includes intubation, defibrillation, electrocardiographic rhythm interpretation, intravenous drug and fluids, and others. As with the other courses, scenarios or fictional scenes with necessary interventions or series of interventions necessary to successfully complete the simulated scenario, and that made up a whole lot of the skills testing of the course. The American Heart Association ACLS guidelines were first published in 1974. So by the mid-70s, we had CPR and ACLS courses. In 1976, an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. James Steiner was piloting his private plane with his family on board. He crashed in rural Nebraska. His wife was killed, and he and three children were severely injured. He was appalled by the evaluation and care they received at the emergency department and in the hospital. Upon his recovery, he got surgeons at the University of Nebraska and the Lincoln Medical Education Foundation to work together on a course for teaching the primary trauma evaluation and care. They developed a course called Advanced Trauma Life Support, and in 1977, they put a few sort of feeler courses on in that general vicinity of Lincoln, Nebraska. By 1980, it was established and adopted by the American College of Surgeons, who spread it nationwide and administer it to this present day. It had didactic lessons, skill stations, again, scenario simulations, and a post-test, just like the other courses, and it got participants a current ATLS card until the expiration date, at which point they need to recertify. So now we're up to CPR, ACLS, and ATLS by around 1980, which incidentally is the year that I graduated from medical school. On the pre-hospital side, down in Alabama, Dr. John Campbell was developing a pre-hospital trauma course called Basic Trauma Life Support, or BTLS. In 1982, the course book, the guidelines, and the spreading of the curriculum nationwide began. BTLS later became ITLS, or International Trauma Life Support, before Dr. Campbell's death. In 1975, the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians, or the NAEMT, Professional Organization Incorporated, and involved themselves in the education, 
certification, and promoting the status of EMTs and paramedics. The National Association in the late 1980s developed their own trauma course, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, or PHTLS. As we'll see, this development of more than one specialty course in a given specialty will continue. So we have CPR, ACLS, ATLS, BTLS, PHTLS, and you can see why we in the emergency medicine community began referring to them as the alphabet courses. Now, what about pediatrics? In that same time period, the late 1970s, at Children's Hospital in Columbus, uh, doctors Martha Bouchore Fallis and Jerry Foster sought out others whose primary field of practice was pediatric emergency care, and they developed the American Academy of Pediatrics Section of Emergency Medicine. Like-minded people at the American Heart Association came up with their own subcommittee on pediatric resuscitation, and so in about 1983, these two groups diverged. The American Heart Association Subcommittee on Pediatric Resuscitation developed a course, the Pediatric Advanced Life Support course, and the AAP-affiliated Advanced Pediatric Life Support Task Force, later to become the APLS Steering Committee, developed their own course in cooperation with the American College of Emergency Physicians. And as you could have predicted, these produced two somewhat confusing courses, PALS and APLS, Pediatric Advanced Life Support under an American Heart Association, and Advanced Pediatric Life Support developed by the AAP and the ACEP. Well, both courses developed over a few years with small local courses to test the concept and then to be released nationwide. The American Heart Association got to the finish line first in 1988, publishing the first Pediatric Advanced Life Support Guideline book and putting on four regional national PALS courses. I'm pretty familiar with this part because a fellow emergency physician and friend of mine from the WVU Medical Center Emergency Department, while I was in a community hospital emergency department, we took one of these courses together in Kansas City, Missouri. The day-long Saturday course was put on by the people whose names were on the PALS course book, and the course was only open to physicians and only in emergency medicine, in pediatrics, in anesthesia, or the new specialty of pediatric emergency medicine. The next day, we met again for the, quote, instructor course, end quote, which consisted of coffee and pastries, and the course directors just telling us to go back and start teaching PALS in our home states. It was a few years before an instructor manual was published. The American Academy of Pediatrics and American College of Emergency Physician group started advanced pediatric life support the next year in 1989. It's a little more technical and includes procedures such as advanced vascular access, airway management, chest tubes, pericardiocentesis, and the like. Around this time, the AAP also produced guidelines for the obstetric suite with NRP or neonatal resuscitation program and NALS, the neonatal advanced life support. Around this time that PALS was coming around, there was also developed a pediatric basic life support or PBLS in 1987-1988. And to further add to the available courses, years later, the 
National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians developed in 1999 an advanced medical life support, AMLS, and in 2001, Pediatric Pre-Hospital Care, or PPC, which was renamed EPC for Emergency Pediatric Care in 2007. Now that your heads are swimming with all of these acronyms, we ask, what other emergency care situations could result in an alphabet course? Well, how about obstetrics? In Wisconsin, members of the American Academy of Family Practice in 1991 developed also ALSO, Advanced Life Support in Obstetrics, and they disseminated it nationwide. Well, how about neurology? In 1998, Advanced Stroke Life Support, or ASLS, was released, and in 2012, ENLS, or Emergency Neurologic Life Support, was developed. There are probably several other of these alphabet courses, but they are all confusing and expensive opportunities to obtain yet another certification card to add to your already bulging wallet or purse. In conclusion, the concept of a short course establishing guidelines, minimum competencies in physical skills, and intellectual ability to pass a post-test pretty much started in the 1960s with CPR by the American Heart Association. And over the next 50 years, it bloomed to include several concepts of emergency care and several little niche courses covering different problems in emergency care. The concept is widely accepted, and I think it's reasonable that having people that most people would agree are experts in their narrow field in each of the courses is a valid method of developing educational products to raise the general level of competence among emergency personnel. I leave the question to you individual listeners as to whether you need to have certification cards in all of these different courses. I'm leaving that all up to you. Well, that completes my discourse on the alphabet courses. I really appreciate your patience with the slow release of the episodes and for your attention. I'm Dr. Rex Lazier, and I look forward to doing more episodes at the podcast, EMS, History, Myth, and Media. Thank you oh so much. <laughs>